Won't you join with me in prayer? Our God and our Father in heaven, we are thankful and grateful for this opportunity that you have provided for us to come together in your house once again. We thank you for how you've been with us already through this day, allowing us to meet together this morning to worship you together as the saints of God. We thank you for bringing us back here this evening and for keeping us through the afternoon. We pray, Lord, as we continue in your presence that you would be with us, that even as we wait for your word to be proclaimed, that you would prepare our hearts as we look at your word, that you'd open our ears to be able to hear your word proclaimed. We want to bring before you our needs as a congregation, though we know that there are many, some that are not mentioned and others which we know of. We pray that you would be with each one present here and each family represented here, that you would meet each at their point of need. For those who are ailing in body, we pray that you would grant them healing. We think of Brother Fonzo and his surgery. We are grateful that he has, that the surgery went well. And now as he recovers, we pray for healing and recovery. We pray that you would be close to him even as his lifestyle changes for a few weeks, we pray that you would use this time to minister to him and be with Miss Bunny as she takes care of Brother Fonzo. We pray, Lord, that you'd also be with others in our, in our midst who are unwell. We think of Alison Davis. We pray that you would continue to be with her and her family. Uh, we pray that you would be with the doctors who are attending to her and that you would grant her comfort even in the midst of pain. We pray, Lord, that you would be with uh, those in our midst who are unwell, that you would grant them recovery, and those that continue to struggle with ongoing illnesses, that you would comfort them. We know the difficulties that come with ongoing illnesses that are prolonged. We pray that you would grant them relief from pain and discomfort, and that you would draw them closer to yourself. We continue to think of the various missionaries who are supported through this church, and we pray that you would sustain them in their work. We pray that you would provide for them, not just materially, but that also uh, you would do so spiritually, that you would fill their cup up as they pour themselves out for the work of ministry, as they give themselves to preaching the gospel and working in various countries and different parts of this country. We pray that you would be with them, meet them at their point of need, and may the gospel continue to spread, and may many come to know you through their efforts. We think of the Oliveras. We are grateful for their ministry in Portugal, and even uh, we pray for their upcoming trip. We look forward to being with them once again, and we pray that you would undertake for them as they travel here to the United States. We pray that you would grant them safety, and be with them in all their travel plans that all would go well. We also think of the various ministries that take place in this church. We think of the ladies' tea that is coming up, and we just pray that it would be a time of encouragement, a time that would be a blessing to all the ladies in this church and all the, those that will be present. We pray that you would be with Miss Janet as she brings uh, your word and teaches the ladies who will be there. 
Now, as we come to your word, Lord, we pray that you would open our minds, that as we read this passage of scripture and we reflect upon it for the next few moments, that you would be in our midst. May Christ be magnified in our midst. May he be glorified and may we be strengthened in our faith, encouraged and rebuked wherever necessary. We pray and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We will be in Philippians this evening, not Exodus, but Philippians. And uh, if you're finding the schedule a little hard to follow, just remember P is for Philippians and P is for Prashant. So that might be a bit easier to know which uh, portion of scripture we'll be looking at tonight or whenever I come. So Philippians and chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 19 through 30. Philippians chapter 2. And we'll we'll be reading verses 19 through 30. In this portion of scripture, we will read about Timothy and and Epaphroditus. Uh, Paul speaks about these two missionary companions who have been a great help to him in the ministry. And there is much talk about some of the unknowns in this passage, some details that we do not know of or we're not told But we won't get into all of those details as we uh, consider this passage this evening. I think one of the reasons of of us having these details not revealed to us is can can be helpful thinking about a phone call conversation. If you're listening to one side of a phone call conversation, you can make out somewhat of what is being said or what the conversation is, but you don't exactly know what is being said on the other side of the conversation. And so too with this letter that Paul writes, we have some of the information uh, about Philippi and other details surrounding this letter that was written, but some of the details we may not know. So rather than speculating, uh, we will stick with what the text does say. And I think there is uh, much to learn and glean from this passage of scripture. So I begin reading from Philippians chapter two, verse 19 through 30. This is the word of the Lord. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life 
to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Here ends the reading of God's word. May he add a blessing to it. So as we consider this passage of scripture, I want us to think about the topic of Christian love. I want us to see that Christians are called to love one another with a Christ-like love. Christians are to love one another with a Christ-like love. And this might seem rudimentary for us. You might think that's something that's very basic. We can all agree upon that. We don't disagree that we ought to love one another. But I think we can also agree that it is something that is difficult for us. It's something that we struggle with. And we can struggle on different parts of the spectrum, as it were. Uh, it might be that you struggle to let people into your life. It might be that you have a superficial relationship. There may be different forms of what your struggle looks like. But we can all agree that as fallen creatures, fallen creatures, we all struggle to love our fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord as we ought to. And so as we study this passage of scripture, and as I read this passage of scripture for you, I wonder if you were struck by the love that existed between Timothy, Epaphroditus, Paul, and even the church in Philippi. It's difficult to miss that these parties or these characters that are described in this particular portion of scripture love one another deeply. C.S. Lewis once said that to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. C.S. Lewis goes on to, to describe that if you don't want your heart to be hurt, you should put it away in a casket, and that's where it will be safest. And there is truth to this, because to love is, like C.S. Lewis said, to, to risk being hurt. If you love hard, you risk being hurt hard. And so sometimes you may think that the solution is just not to love, to withdraw. It's, it's okay to have superficial relationships. It's okay to interact at a, at a, at a level of knowing one another but not getting to love one another deeply. But as we study the life of the Apostle Paul and, and we look at the way he interacts with many of his missionary companions or even in the book of Acts, we see how he interacts. We see that he was deeply involved with those he worked with. He didn't just have a working relationship with them, but he grew to love them as his own uh, sons, as a father would love a son or as a brother. He loved them deeply. But when he disagreed, he also disagreed with them strongly. He disagreed with the Apostle Peter, Barnabas, Mark. He disagreed with many people that he worked with. But what we notice about his disagreements is that they are motivated by his zeal for God's glory. It's not selfish, but it's rather motivated for God's glory. So as we study this passage together, I want you to see that Christians ought to love one another with a Christ-like love. Christians ought to love one another with a Christ-like love. And to help us think about this topic, we'll look at two questions. The first is, what does this look like? What does this Christ-like love look like? And in the second case, what does it produce? So what does this love look like? And secondly, what does this love produce? So let's first of all 
consider what does this love look like. And for this portion of, of the sermon, I just want us to comb through the passage of Scripture and notice how the love that they have for one another is shown, how it is expressed. To state the obvious, I think the first thing we want to note here that it's this kind of love, a Christ-like love, puts Christ first. Now that might sound like circular reasoning, but it needs to be stated. It needs to be stated because as you see there in verses 20 and 21, that ought to be the foundation for why we love one another. Look with me at verse 20. Paul says, I have no one like him, that is Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that this ties back in with what he has been saying uh, in verses 3 to 11. Uh, if you remember the earlier portion of this chapter, Paul begins chapter 2 by encouraging the Philippians to not be selfish, but to have one mind, one heart, to think the same thoughts and to not do anything from selfish ambition. Looking at verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Notice the similarity of language between verse 3 and what we are seeing here in verse 20 and 21. Paul is making the connection. In verse 3, he told them, uh, writing to the Philippians, that they should have others' interests at heart first before their own interests. And now in verse 20 and 21, he talks about Timothy. Timothy is such a person who doesn't have his own interests in mind, but rather he has the interests of Jesus Christ in mind. That is what is first and foremost for Timothy. And he commends Timothy to the Philippian church. I don't think it's an accident that Paul now goes to this section and, and basically describes Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples of what he has encouraged the Philippian church to do in verses 1 through 5. He exhorts them to love one another and to be of one mind, and then he gives them this example of Timothy. But what is interesting is that unity that he is encouraging them to pursue is not unity for unity's sake. It's not just so that you'll be functional, like a business organization that must work together so they can achieve their mission and vision. But the goal is, or the, the motivation is that he seeks the interest of Jesus Christ. And so you can think about it like this. If your vertical relationship with God is right, then you, the way you love your brothers and sisters will be motivated by that relationship. So vertical first and the horizontal flows out of that. It's not automatic, right? And, and hence this sermon, we need to be reminded of such passages as these. It's not automatic, but it does flow out of that relationship. And as we see in uh, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19, that Paul says, uh, I'm sorry, John says, that we love because God loved us first. 1 John and chapter 4 verse 19. We love because he first loves us. Then he goes on to say, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has not, who he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, this passage is going to be important for us as we, as we make our way through the sermon. 
Because what John is saying here in this chapter is very important. He's basically saying that we know if someone is a Christian by how they love their fellow Christians. How do you know somebody is a Christian? By the way they treat their fellow Christians. That's what he's saying in this passage. But he's also saying that we are able to love only because God has first done a work in us. So in answering this question, what does this love look like? It first and foremost is someone who has come to know Jesus Christ, who has tasted of this love, who knows Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, and out of that flows his love for his fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. It comes out of the understanding that we are one body, that we, were, that we all have the same spirit as Ephesians tells us, one God and one Lord of all. That is what unites us, and that's what motivates us to love our brothers and sisters. Even more clearly, in John chapter 15 and verse 12, Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you would love one another. Children, maybe you remember the Sunday school song. I won't try to sing it right now, but this is my commandment, that you would love one another, that your joy may be whole, right? Simple song, but that is a commandment. It's not an option. And we are to love all our brothers and sisters in the Lord. The reality is we get along better with some people than we do with others. Maybe we have similar interests. You can think of me, I come to the south and I have no idea about hunting. So I don't fit in a lot of the conversations. When people are talking about hunting, I nod my head and say, that sounds really cool. <laughs> but I'm not going to have the right questions to ask. But that doesn't stop me from hanging out with y'all. I still love you as brothers and sisters. And I still try to make sense of it. Okay, I guess you don't wear red when you go hunting. There's some logic to that. I, I joke, but I can understand that. Um, so there are differences. It might be at that level or more, more similar, uh, more, more subtle differences that we have with one another. That is not an excuse for us to not love one another. We don't just love those that we get along with or we have similar interests with, but we are commanded to love one another. So it's not optional, but it's also something that we have to work at. That is why it's a command, because if it was easy, if it was just second nature for us, then it wouldn't be commanded to us, right? So firstly, we see that it puts Christ first. This kind of love, what does it look like? It puts Christ first. You have Christ's interests First, as we see Timothy is commended to do. But we also see that it is deeply affectionate. As we read through this passage of Scripture, we can't miss that Paul has deep affections for these two brothers, for Timothy and Epaphroditus, but also that Epaphroditus has love for the church in Philippi, which is quite remarkable. So I want to draw some of these out and we won't spend too much time uh, on, on each of these, but I do want us to appreciate it as we go through this passage of Scripture. Notice that Paul refers to Timothy as a father with a son, a father with a son there in verse 22. And this is not unique to this uh, particular epistle as he writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and uh, verse 2, he describes, Paul, uh, he describes Timothy as his beloved son in the faith. In other portions of scripture, when he refers to Timothy, he refers to him as his child in the faith or his brother in the faith. 
He's using language, filial language, to express the deep bond that he has. But he's also confessing a reality that he has in Jesus Christ. He truly believes that Timothy is like a son to him because he has discipled him, he has walked with him, he has traveled with him, but he also is affirming the reality that they are part of one family in Jesus Christ. Now, I've observed that this can go one of two ways for us as Christians, depending on your own family situation. If you have a good, strong family that is maybe is a Christian family and you can gravitate towards them, we can sometimes begin to put the church on the outside. The church is a secondary relationship. And so I go to church with these people. These are my fellow members in Christ. But my family is over here. The other extreme of that, and I can use myself as an example, is if your family is not Christian and you find that you have less in common with them than you do with those in the church. We find that in those situations, you can gravitate the other extreme where your family is the church. And it's true. You are one. You have more in common with those who you share your faith with. But you can disregard your biological family altogether. And I think those are two extremes that we want to avoid. We do want to appreciate that it is true, as Jesus said, that those who do the will of God are our true family. That doesn't give us an excuse to shun our family or to be distant and not fulfill obligations to them. But we must realize that we share something deeper with those who profess the faith that we have. And so we want to keep these two realities in balance. But we also see that Paul describes Epaphroditus as his fellow worker in Christ, but also his brother. There, if you look at verse 25, he says, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker. Once again, he acknowledges that they are of one family and we have this deep bond. Then he speaks very highly of these two brethren. In verse 20, we read, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. So he's saying that Timothy exceeds all other companions that he has. He is trustworthy. He has labored with him. We also read about Epaphroditus in verse 25, all the titles he gives him, my brother, my fellow worker, fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. That is a lot of titles that he's giving to Epaphroditus, but he's commending him to the church in Philippi. He is saying, this man is useful to you. And like he says at the end of that passage in verse 29, that you should honor such men, the men who have been called to the ministry. Let me just pause and make two side notes real quick here. You'll notice that we will jump around a little bit, but I'll try to make sure that I am giving you the scripture references so we follow along. We're not going verse by verse, but we're rather looking at some themes that come out of, of this passage. We should also notice that though Paul is speaking about missionary companions, so these are people who are in the ministry, we should by no means think that this kind of love and bond that they share is only for those in the ministry. So between missionaries or between a pastor and an elder, it's easy to look at a text like this and say, yes, that's for those in the ministry, but we can be on the periphery. We can kind of be distant members of the church who slide in and out. Uh, that is not what 
we should glean from this passage of Scripture. But notice also, from this passage, we see that the individuals who are described in this text rejoice to be with one another. They rejoice to be together. Look at verse 19, 26, and 28, for example. In verse 19, he is looking forward that Timothy would be with them so that they would be cheered by news of him. Verse 26, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because he heard that, because you heard that he was ill. I also want to just appreciate on that point, just think about Epaphroditus. So he had fallen ill on his journey, supposedly, as he is taking this support to Paul. And so he gets so sick to the point of death, but he manages to deliver the gift to Paul. But his concern is not primarily that he fell ill. Did you notice that in that verse? He has been longing for you all and has been distressed. Why? Because you heard that he was ill. So he's not distressed that he almost died. He's distressed that the Philippian church have heard that this happened to him and he's not with them and they will be worried. That is the extent of his love for them. But it also shows us his selflessness. Yes, he almost died. He should be concerned about himself. But even in that state, he is still thinking about the work, about the people back in Philippi. But going back to rejoicing over being with one another, I think we can again glean something from this. Do you look forward to being with God's people? Or do you zoom out as soon as the meeting, formal meeting is done? And I don't see that, I mean, here we, we hang out, we have a meal together afterwards, we, you know, we stick around and we talk and we find out how we're doing. But there are some churches where the church service ends at 11 a.m., and 11.05, the parking lot is empty. And that is not an exaggeration. So you wonder, are these people who rejoice to be with one another? Or is it a matter of ticking off the box? I'm at church for one hour, one hour, 30 minutes, but immediately the set time is done, I'm ready to go home um, and do whatever else I need to do. So the way we conduct ourselves says a lot about where our heart is at. If you're really looking forward to being with one another, I think we'd have something of what we see in this church where everybody has left and there are people still chatting and the deacons come and are like ringing the keys, like, I need to lock up and leave. You know, you actually have to push people out of the doors. I think that's an example of what our fellowship should be like. We should actually want to stay with one another. We should enjoy being with one another. And on the other side of that, we also see the sorrow that they experience to be separated. Again, look at verse 26, 27, and 28. As we have already seen, he is distressed because they heard that he was ill. And then we also see there that Paul says, should he have not recovered from the sickness, verse 27, Paul would have had sorrow upon sorrow. If perchance Epaphroditus fell so sick that he passed on, Paul would have been greatly distressed, and this again brings out for us how much he cared for Epaphroditus, how much he loved this dear brother in the Lord, and how useful he was to him. And lastly, we notice that it comes with sacrifice. He sacrificed even his health to fulfill this task that he was assigned. 
And love comes with sacrifice. We know that. Sacrificial service. We, we love other people when we intentionally make them move to do what is good for another at personal cost. That could be a definition for what love is. It's putting the other's needs before our own. And so the classic passage we think of when we think about love in the Bible is what? 1 Corinthians 13. I won't rebuke you for not giving me feedback like how does. I just want you to think about it. Um, so 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it's the love passage. It's the passage you go to if you want to know what is love. But sometimes we forget the context. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which is before 13, Paul is addressing the unity within the body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 to the end of the chapter. He speaks about being united, being one in the body of Christ. And so after he describes the unity, that is when he goes on to speak about the love that they are to have for one another. So we sometimes miss the context. If you look at chapter 12, verse 31, he says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And then he transitions into chapter 13. So he talks about how we are to love one another. And in this passage, he lays out the fact that love is patient, love is kind. Verse 4, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It does, is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And going forward, in verse 8, he says, uh, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. I'm sorry, I think I'm supposed to be at verse 7. Yeah, verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So we could, we could read the entirety of the passage, and I would commend it to you to reflect on it further, answering the question, what does this love look like? 1 Corinthians and chapter 13 gives us more about that. But what I want us to notice from there is that Paul is speaking about the love we are to have towards one another within the church, and what this kind of love looks like. So having spent some time considering the passage and, and trying to glean from it what it's saying about Christian love, let's look at ourselves for just a moment. Let us do some introspection and thinking about what does this look like for us. If this is the kind of love that was being fostered between uh, Paul and his missionary companions, the church there, and Philippians, the Philippian church was by no means a perfect church. We've already seen that. But we can glean from it these relationships that were formed, and we can, we can be encouraged by what we read here. How can we then foster such relationships within our church? What are some things that will encourage us to love one another in a more deep and meaningful way, and that would help us put away perhaps loving at a superficial level, or how would we work at getting to know one another more or getting more involved in each other's lives? And that is not to say we are not already doing this, but it's more to encourage us to keep on doing what we are doing 
and see where we can do better. We want to avoid being just at a superficial level where we see each other and we might know each other's names and know where we stay, but without really being involved in each other's lives. Could it be that personal space, as we would call it, is overrated? Now, there, there are different things to consider here. But personal space, we often take that and use it as an excuse when we don't want people to be in our business. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to share life with people, right? Because when people can see into your life, when they see your eating habits, when they see your spiritual disciplines, when they see how you treat your husband or your wife or your children, they may start to form opinions about you. But if we are within a community of believers, we are supposed to live lives which are open with wisdom, right? We, we have to be wise in these things, and I'm not taking away from that. But we need to be wise in letting people into our lives that they may have input into our lives. And they can only have input if they see us doing life, if they see how we parent, if they see how we do at school, what are some of our habits? How do we go about uh, our education, what are our work habits? But if we don't share those details, those fine details, we are robbing ourselves of the graces that come from being in the body of, of believers. But it's uncomfortable. And I'm saying this, yes, I'm on the pulpit, but I'm not saying this as one who has achieved this. This is something that we can all learn from and be encouraged by. And so when we spend time with one another, what are we actually doing when we spend time together? How do we foster these deep relationships? Yes, we can be open. Are we praying for one another? That's, that's a really good way to be involved in each other's lives. And there's two sides to that. You want people to be open, but doesn't mean that that gives you now fuel for gossip. You don't want to know what people are doing so you can go and spread and repeat. Right, because that becomes another problem. So get involved in people's lives, but don't do it with an intention to go and share and gossip, because that will kill deep love very quickly. Because people will close up again. People don't want to share their lives with you if you are going to be uh, parading everything they share with you out there. So if personal space is overrated, we can, like I said, we can pray for one another more, we can do life together. I've, I've heard of so many great examples, and I personally have benefited from older men in the faith who have just called me in and said, I'm cooking dinner tonight, come and join me, let's figure out what we're going to eat, I'm, I'm working on my car, I'm doing, I'm putting up some shelves, I'm doing some painting, and while you're imparting some practical skills, you're also just talking about the faith. You're getting to know each other better. You're getting to know that Prashant doesn't know how to paint. He, he's trying to use a paintbrush where you should use a roller. And you gently correct him. So he's learning the practical skills, but you're also talking about, so how do you come to the faith? Oh, I didn't realize that. Oh, okay. Um, what do you do in your free time? Uh, well, I just like watching movies. What kind of movies do you like watching? So you get to know people better, and that helps you to pray more intelligently, but also helps you speak into their lives. And you might think, I don't have much to share with somebody, but you'll be surprised. You'll be surprised at what you can share. 
And again, looking around in this congregation, we have people all across the ages. We have someone who is a little baby, and we have grandparents, and we have people in the middle. So we can all learn from one another. We can share our experiences, and we can be an encouragement to each other. That is one of the blessings of being in a church. This is one of the ways that we can actually be fostering deeper relationships, that we can get to know one another. And we are grateful for opportunities that the church provides where we can get together, have meals together, but we can even do more than that, right? We can be more involved with one another's lives. That's something that we see, that we can look at this passage and say, this can be true for us even today. It's not something that has been lost because of the busyness of life and industrialization and everything that has come with it. We can still learn to love one another and have close relationships the way we are reading about in this passage of Scripture. But still talking a few more moments about practical application. How can we impart this in our own lives? We need to be thinking about how we can build one another up. So we've talked about coming together, spending time with each other, and and those kinds of things. But we also need to think about what things will build one another up. Um, It's easy for us to come together and just be you know, slanderous or just be gossiping. So we need to be careful with our speech. And, and sometimes you can just think about the negative, like we shouldn't be slanderous or we shouldn't gossip. But even in our compliments, do we try and flatter people? Do we try and say things that just make them feel good but there's no truth to it? Those are things that are also hurtful, though we may not think about it. Do we say things that actually build people up? They actually encourage one another and grow in the faith. And so I'm not saying that every time we get together, we just have to be doing spiritual things. But as Christians, when you come together, out of your heart should flow the things that you think about. It can just be natural. But we do need to think about how we can be building one another up. There should be a purpose, and we'll come back to that in the second point. There should be a purpose for our coming together. There should be a purpose for our loving one another. So lastly, thinking about what does this kind of love look like? We first considered that it's founded in Christ. We secondly saw that it's deeply affectionate. And thirdly, what does this love look like? Well, it's a type of love that fosters trust and reliability. And we've already seen this in this passage of Scripture. And remember the context that Paul is in prison. Paul is in prison at the time, and so he is restricted by what he can do. Yes, we have read that he has been evangelizing those uh, in his imprisonment area and those he interacts with, but he still continues to be active in the ministry through men like Timothy and Epaphroditus. He is concerned about them, and he has trustworthy men who can continue furthering, furthering the gospel. They can continue doing the work of ministry. And we saw how he spoke about Timothy's proven worth there in verse 22, or Epaphroditus, how he speaks of him as a fellow soldier and worker in the faith. And so my encouragement is that we should be people who are trustworthy. We should be people who are trustworthy. And so when we are given assignments or we are given tasks to do, we should keep our word, we should do the best of our ability to fulfill those particular tasks, that we may be people that can actually be entrusted to such duties that we can be people that are well spoken of, just as Paul is able to say of Timothy, 
that we are able to earn this reputation and we are to be people of uh, good repute among our peers, among our, even among the world, that people may know this person to be trustworthy. But the other side of that is that we should be willing to entrust responsibility and duties to others. And that's more difficult than you might think because to entrust in responsibility is to be vulnerable. You might be let down. They might not do things the way you want them to be done. It might take time for you to teach them. You have to be patient to see them make mistakes and keep teaching them. And, and if you have little children, you know that you have to do this with them. You have to teach them. You might want to correct what they're doing and, and quickly perfect, maybe if they're doing some craft or art, you want to quickly say, no, you're supposed to do that. But part of the learning process is letting them make mistakes and coaching them and helping them grow through that. So too in our walk with the Lord, we, might, we need to entrust responsibility to other believers. And they may not do it exactly the way we would want, but that's where discipleship comes in. We need to be involved. We need to coach them and guide them through the tasks that we have entrusted to them. So we are to be, we are to be trusting other people with tasks, with wisdom. Again, we need to have wisdom as we do these things, but we should also be seeking to grow as people that can be trusted. So there's two sides to that coin. So having answered the question, what does this love look like? Let us come in the last place to see what does this produce? What does this kind of Christ-like love produce? Now, put your heart at ease. The last point is not as long as the first. So we won't be here another 30 minutes or, or so. This, we will be concluding with this last point, and it is, it is a lot shorter. What does this Christ-like love produce? And I think that is important for us to consider because there are many other wicked causes that bring men and women together. If you just think of maybe you have some friends in the world or even if you've just heard of stories, there are things that bring people together that form deep camaraderie that sometimes we don't even see in the church, but they're united for wicked purposes. They are united, they have uh, confidentiality and stories that they would not even share with the outside world. They care for one another in such a profound way, but they're doing it for a wicked purpose. You can think of maybe the mafia or you can think of gangs or you know, people who get together to do all kinds of immoral things. That you can notice that the bond that they have can be very strong, but it is for a wicked purpose. It is for a wicked purpose. But unlike them, Christians are not coming together for a wicked purpose. We are coming together for a holy purpose. We are striving to love one another as we grow together Ephesians, Ephesians 4 tells us we are growing in unity and that as each member of the body is working together, we are becoming more and more like Christ. We are the bride of Christ as the church, but each individual believer has a part to play. We are gifted differently. We are gifted individually but like Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16 tells us that when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Builds itself up, builds itself up in love. 
So this Christ-like love that we are to show to one another is one that glorifies God. As the world looks into us, into the church, they see a community of believers who share with one another, who have everything in common. If we think back to Acts chapter 2, they share their needs, they, they care for one another in a way that we see in this passage. They are deeply affectionate, they are genuine, they are real with each other. So there's the practical and the emotional aspect and the spiritual. And as we do that, we are, we are shining the glory of Christ into a dark world into which we have been called. And we, and we read about that in, earlier on in chapter 2 when Paul says that we are called to be shining lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, verse 15. So not only will we shine as lights in the world that we have been called to, but we together will be working for the propagation of the gospel. As we see here, Paul is in prison, but the ministry still continues on. And so though Paul is an apostle uniquely called of God, the ministry did not stop because he was in prison. He depended upon other men, able men, who were able to carry the gospel on and continue the work that he had begun. And I think that is remarkable. Sometimes we can, we can idolize figures, men of faith who are very influential and very powerful and think that, that everything depends upon them. And when this figure leaves, how is the church going to continue or how is a particular ministry going to continue? But we see here in Paul that the way he trained these men, the way he discipled them was so that it didn't all depend on him being there. And that's remarkable for us because Paul is an apostle. He is the one on which the church was founded, and yet he did not put himself in a place where he was irreplaceable. And so we too should think about how we do ministry. We should do ministry in a way that should we be struck down tomorrow, things would continue on as normal. Yes, we are all going to be grieved by the passing of a brother or a sister in the Lord, but the work of Christ should not be hindered as a result of that. And that ties in with my earlier point that we need to be entrusting responsibility to others. We shouldn't make ourselves irreplaceable. We should be training up others because we have this goal in mind that the gospel should continue to spread to the ends of the world. And that takes a lot of humility, but it also makes, it, it requires us to keep our eyes on the big picture. It's not about us. It's about the mission of Jesus Christ. And that is difficult, but may God help us to see that. And so as we've studied this passage this evening, we have seen that Christians ought to love one another with a Christ-like love. We saw what this love looks like, and we spent some time looking at practical ways in which we can think about this. And I would, I would encourage us to keep thinking about it and talking about it. How can we learn to love one another better? But we've also seen that it produces fruit. It produces gospel fruit. And so this love that Christians are to share with one another is not just one so that we can feel good or we, we have a nice place to come and hang out, but it's rather so that we are doing the work of the gospel. We are spreading the gospel and ensuring that we're making disciples who keep on taking the gospel to the ends of the world. Let us bow in prayer, and I'll just ask if you would bow, bow your heads silently for just a few moments 
um, as we reflect upon the word that was preached, and then I will pray. Our dear God and Father in heaven, we are reminded from your word that you are love. We are reminded of your great love with which you loved us, that you love this world, that you sent your one and only son to die for us, that we might be reconciled to you. And as people who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, people who have been brought into the church, we pray that you would help us to be imitators of Christ, that you would help us to love one another with the love of Christ, and that we would put the interests of Christ before our own. We pray and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.